We are in part number nine of our study. No other gospel through the book of Galatians, this little letter that Paul gives to a bunch of churches in southern Galatia. As we are making our way through, we come to a very interesting passage, as you might have gleaned from our scripture reading. A passage that is full of mystery, that is full of interesting interpretations. But I think actually what Paul does here, uh, it actually makes a lot of sense if you just stop and listen to what he's trying to say. So we'll get to that in a minute. And indeed, I think to understand what Paul is going to do here at the end of chapter number 4, we have to actually jump ahead just a little bit and read the first verse of chapter number 5. So if you're in Galatians, look at chapter 5, look at verse 1. And you'll notice what he says as this sort of declarative statement that I think works as a fulcrum, sort of a pivot point, both from what he's talking about in chapter 4 and what he's going to talk about in chapter 5, this very first verse. Notice what he says. For freedom, Paul says, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Again, this is a concise way of summing up everything he's just talked about, and it's going to segue him nicely and neatly into talking about everything that he's going to talk about in chapter 5, including the most famous passage of that chapter, which is the fruits of the Spirit. But essentially, this is the theme of the letter, that Jesus Christ has set us free, that his work on the cross is the work that sets sinners free from their slavery to sin, from their slavery to death. This is the work, the work of Jesus that welcomes them, welcomes sinner of every stripe, of every sort, to live freely by faith in Christ. This very much is, this verse, A concise way of summing up the gospel. And essentially, it is serving to sort of rebuff and and sort of uh, serving as a retort, if you will, to all of the teachings of the Judaizers that had defiled, had really distorted this message, as we've noticed all throughout this letter so far. This group of Jewish legalists, the Judaizers, they were leading the believers in Galatia to become entangled by the bondage of of the law once again. They were saying that, yes, it's not just faith, it's faith plus, it's it's Jesus plus something else. And and essentially, the the whole crux of this, this whole fiasco, if you will, is the fact that as Paul has diagnosed them, the Galatians were doing this all on their own. They were willingly putting themselves back, as he has just noted, into the yoke of slavery once again. By putting yourselves under the preaching of just this overbearing law, by applying all of these things that you have to accomplish in order to have right standing with God, you were entering slavery once again. And this is why Paul, you can tell, just read the words, he's admonishing them, stand firm. Stand firm in the freedom that comes from Christ. Stand firm. Be resolute in what the gospel says. Don't don't sway from, from what this doctrine says. Don't sway from what you know is true according to the scriptures. Don't be swayed to believe something else. Don't back down from this doctrine. Stand firm on the fact that for freedom, Christ has set us free. And the point that he's striving to make here, but in many other letters that Paul will write, that there is absolutely no freedom outside of Jesus Christ. Nothing. 
There's there, any, anything that promises you freedom or fulfillment that doesn't have Christ crucified at its very center, at its very heart. It's lying to you. It's a mirage. Nothing can set you free except the work of Christ that sets sinners free, that sets men and women free. I cannot, anything else will just weigh you down. It'll enslave you. It can't free you. And this is what Paul has been saying throughout the first few chapters of this letter. But it's so important for here to keep, him, to keep this in mind. Because I think it will help us to understand this illustration that Paul is going to get out of here at the end of chapter number 4. How he illustrates this truth is so fascinating to me. Notice what he does. Again, look at verse 21 of chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to, to be under the law, do you not listen to the law, again, you notice, he's addressing the Galatians kind of pejoratively. Hey, you guys, you guys who are wanting to live under all the things that Moses wrote, have you ever even read what Moses wrote? <laughs> That's essentially the, what he's asking them. Have you even read it? You say you want to live by it. You, you're, you're saying by your actions, by the way that you're receiving what the Judaizers are teaching, you're saying that you want to live by the law. Have you even read that? The law, of course, in this instance, is a reference to all of the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of your Bible. It's the same as when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that he has not come to abolish the law, uh, but he's come to fulfill it. It's a a shorthand reference to all of those writings of Moses at the beginning of your Bibles. And the Galatians had become enamored. They had become so infatuated by all of the the messages, the great sermons, the great eloquence of the Judaizers. that They had become so, uh, yes, enslaved by their doctrines. But of course this infatuation... That the Galatians were demonstrating was built up under false pretenses. Because as Paul has shown elsewhere, but he's definitely going to show here, the Judaizers had completely misrepresented what the scriptures were trying to reveal, what they were trying to say. And again, what we could do is we could boil down the messages of the Judaizers to one essential truth, basically. Which is the fact that the Galatians, this is, imagine Judaizing preachers are preaching in pulpits and all the churches in Galatia. What they would basically, the gist of all of their sermons was that you Galatians, you are responsible for your freedom. Freedom, they said, was experienced only as you individually, strictly and very rigorously and very painstakingly followed everything that the law commanded, everything that the law said. Unless you do X, Y, and Z, you cannot be saved. You cannot be justified. You cannot be welcomed into the family of God. This, again, you want the most explicit reference of this. Just go to Acts 15, verse 1. What did the Judaizers say? Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. That was their message. It was a very declarative message of saying that you have to do something. Your freedom is up to you. You have to do this. All of which Paul has been saying from the opening of Galatians till right now. He's basically saying, that's a bunch of nonsense. That's hogwash, Paul would say. That's not true at all. Don't you know what the Bible says? That's what he's asking them here. And then he proceeds in verses 22 down through the rest of the chapter to illustrate what he means. 
by invoking this very fascinating piece of Hebrew history. Notice again verse 22. For, for it is written. Again, he's citing scripture. He's not going to directly quote yet, but he's citing Old Testament scripture. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. This section has caused its fair share of frustration and confusion in the past. But again, as I said, I think it will all make perfect sense if you just stop long enough to catch what Paul is saying. He begins by alluding to the fact that Abraham, good old Father Abraham, who we've noticed before, Paul likes to use Father Abraham to make certain points, not only historically, but doctrinally and spiritually and theologically. And here he's going to do all that at once. And he alludes to the fact that Abraham, good old father Abraham, he had two sons. And of course, you might know, if you remember from Sunday school, he's talking about Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael, the son, was the son of the the slave woman. He's the son of Hagar. While Isaac, we could say, you could identify him as the son of of the free woman. He's the son of Sarah. And so Paul's going to set up these two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, as these two sort of contrasting figures, these two paradigms by which not only the history of God's people can be understood, but also within it the whole Christian faith can be understood. And he explores this sort of dichotomy between Ishmael and Isaac even further. He presses it even further by referring to Ishmael as the, the one who was born according to the flesh, while Isaac was born through promise. What's going on here? What is, what's Paul getting at with all this? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 16. Because I think to understand what Paul is doing here, we have to go back to sort of really get in our mind's eye what he's referring to. When he says, it was written, well, what is he talking about when it was written? Genesis 16 and Genesis 21 record for us these amazing passages where these two sons are born, Ishmael and Isaac. But if you remember and if you recall, God, of course, had given Abraham this remarkable promise. I'll just read the verses. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord, Jehovah, said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is, of course, the very beginnings of the Abrahamic covenant that God would repeat multiple times throughout the rest of the couple chapters in Abraham's life. And essentially it boils down to, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you offspring. Later he says that, Abraham, you're going to have sons and daughters that are as numberless as the dust of the earth. You won't even, as numberless as the stars in the heavens. 
Fascinatingly, if you read verse 4 of chapter 12, God makes this covenant with Abraham when he's 75 years young. Which is just to say that he's making this promise at a very interesting stage of Abraham's life. Because it means that Sarah at this time is roughly 65. And they have no children to speak of. Fast forward 10 years and you get to chapter number 15. And Abraham is... Roughly in his 80s now, and he's beginning to worry about the promise, you know, of all of these offspring that are going to come from his line. How is this going to happen? I'm in my early 80s. God, this seems a little bit, mm, this seems a little questionable, God. And notice what he says. Look at chapter 15. Abraham, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram, notice, Abram starts to question God. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? The idea behind this this phrase, this statement, this question is, am I going to die without having any offspring? Because that would kind of ruin your promise, God. Am I going to continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Basically, he's saying... He, he knew, he, Abraham was smart, he knew that he and Sarah, they were not getting any younger. Sarah, initially, 10 years before this moment, you'll remember she's roughly in her 60s, and you could basically say she's beyond her childbearing years when the first promise was made, and that hasn't like reversed 10 years later. So he makes the logical assumption. I've, I've hired, I've adopted this guy, Eleazar from Damascus. He's kind of like my steward. He's kind of like my son. Is he, is he the one? Can I make him the one? It makes logical sense. It makes practical sense. We're just going to call. He's going to be the heir of promise, Eleazar. And God says, no, no. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Notice, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and the number of the star and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God basically saying, I'm not going to let biology or old age get in the way of my plans to redeem the world, Abraham. Don't worry about it. And the emphasis, you'll notice the emphasis of of God's re-emphasis of his covenant with Abraham is the fact that it's your son, Abraham. Yours. Not not someone else's. It's your son, your offspring, through your line. The heir would come through him, which I think, of course, you imagine Abraham and Sarah in this situation. Having this promise come back to them once more, what would, what would be going through their minds? Again, it emphasizes the sheer impossibility of, of this whole thing being brought to fruition. Since, you know, time and old age seem to be going against them. But you see, our God, in this moment, you can, you can kind of see Abraham's thought process. He's looking... He's looking for a loophole. God, I am so close to the grave and I don't have a son. Can we just call him my son, Eleazar? Uh, Kind of fulfill your promise. God's, our our God is not a God of loopholes. He doesn't 
need to find like a shortcut in order to make his plans come about, in order to to fulfill what he has promised and said was going to happen. Our God is a God of miracles. What who can make the impossible happen? And this is what the rest of Genesis 15 shows us. A wonderful passage. We're not going to read it. But if you'll remember Genesis 15, we've demonstrated it. Uh, we've, we've talked about it several, on several occasions. This is that scene where God swears on himself. You know, he makes this promise. He tells Abraham that this is going to happen. And then, you know, in those, old, in those older days, they used to have this covenant-making process, Right? And you would take a bull, you, you cut it in half, and basically you walk through it. And it's like a visual representation of the agreement that you're going to make. And you're basically saying, let, let, what was, let, let what was done to this bull be done to me if I break my word. And you remember, Abraham falls asleep. And who's the only one who walks through the bull? God. He's the only one. So God is, and this is what was referenced in Hebrews chapter 6, by the way. Uh, We talked about it a long time ago when we preached about that. But God is basically saying, I'm going to make this promise, and I'm going to be the one to keep this promise. I'm the promise maker and the promise keeper. And the way that all my promises are fulfilled are not dependent upon sinful, sorry man. It's dependent upon me and my faithfulness, God is saying. And so with all of that in mind, all of that. We get to Genesis 16. And you'll notice, because all all of that was necessary, because all of that makes the fiasco of Genesis 16 way worse than what it sounds. Because you'll notice, notice what occurs. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, so she's still childless. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now... The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go in to my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into, her, went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt upon her mistress. And jump down to verse 15. And Hagar bore Abraham a son. And Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So here we have the birth of Ishmael, the one who was born according to flesh, as Paul would describe it. And so here again, notice, after years of waiting, you know, it's been a decade or more since that first promise was made to Abraham. And he comes home and he tells Sarah, guess what? After all these years, we're finally going to have children. Ten years later, still hasn't happened. And so Sarah's frustrated, as you can imagine. And so she, she decides here in this moment that she's going to take matters into her own hands. And she devises a plan for Abraham to sleep with her handmaid, Hagar, and bring forth a son through her. And this is, this is probably perhaps the most extreme form of surrogacy. <laughs> Where a woman would, you know, bear the child for another woman. But practically speaking, you can, it, it makes sense, right? 
It would fulfill the parameters of God's promise. Abraham would have a son. It would be his son with his DNA. All would be well, except for, you know, the part where Sarah would have to be okay with her man sleeping with another woman. And the fact that this violates God's designed order for a husband and for a wife. (laughs) You know, that part. As you might expect, human nature takes over really quickly. As it said in verse 4, did you catch it? In no time at all, Sarah and Hagar are at odds with each other. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she, Sarah, looked with contempt on her mistress. It turns out that Sarah's plans don't sit well with Hagar or Sarah. And notice, so she tries to shift the blame. Verse 5 And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. (laughs) Talk about blame shifting. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Of course, the story as it goes on, lots of historical ramifications for global history and so on and so forth. Stuff that we can't really get into this morning. But at the end, just know Abraham has born a son through this handmaid, Hagar. But still, the heir of promise has not been born. Why? Why can't Ishmael be Abraham's successor? Why wouldn't it work? Why can't Ishmael be the one through whom the earth shall be blessed? He is Abraham's son, isn't he? Yes, he is. But I think this this is just awesome to me. I think it's because God's promise to redeem the world has always been tied not to the seed of man, but to the seed of the woman. If you go all the way back to Genesis 15 or Genesis 3, verse 15, what is the promise of Eden? That, yes, you, Eve, and your offspring will bring forth the one who would come and, yes, not only have a bruised heel, but he would crush the head of the serpent. Therefore, the promise of the Son of God that would come and redeem the world wasn't just tied to one particular line. It was tied to these two together. So with Ishmael, unable to fulfill the role of Abraham's promised heir, God, again, reaffirms his promise to Abraham that he would be exceedingly fruitful. Go over to chapter 17. Look at verse 5. And if you get, the, if you get a pattern about this, just know, this is God being very patient we're very faithless, very fickle human beings. And not much has changed. <laughs> Chapter 17, look at verse 5. After all of that with, with Ishmael and Hagar and Sarah. Notice what God says to him. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And by this point, by the way, Abraham is roughly 99 years old and makes Sarah roughly around 90. Making this promise even more than a little unlikely. And in fact, in chapter 18, if you remember that story, Sarah laughs. She laughs at the notion. She thinks it's funny what God has promised. I'm 90 years old, God. And that's when we get to chapter 21. Notice verse 21 or chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. 
And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. At the time of which God had spoken to him, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. He's roughly 100 years old. 25 years of waiting. 25 years of waiting on God to live up to his word. And after all of that, God finally does. He delivers on his promise. Isaac is born. The son born through promise, as Paul says. His birth was something that God made possible. Did you catch that? It was all according to what God had said, what God had promised, what God would do. It was this birth of Isaac was a miracle that can only be explained by the gracious power of Almighty God. No one else can explain it. And again, now contrast that with the birth of Ishmael, who Paul, as we said, was, uh, describes it as born through flesh. Abraham, or Ishmael's birth, you could say, was made possible by way of Sarah and Abraham scheming. They schemed in order for that to happen. They made it happen by assuming that this loophole that they had some, somehow figured out, this loophole in their lineage, this loophole in their marriage even, would be sufficient for realizing the promises of God. And this, of course, wasn't true genetically, nor was it true historically. But what Paul does... In Galatians chapter 4 is to basically say that this wasn't true spiritually either. So you have all that. Go back with me to Galatians 4. Because then this helps us make sense. You have Ishmael. You have Isaac. One born according to what Abraham and Sarah did according to the flesh. And you have another Isaac born according to what God did by way of his word of promise. And notice what Paul says. Verse 24, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's using this very true very historical backdrop, so to speak, of, of, of these births of Ishmael and Isaac. And he's using that to demonstrate what it means that we, the church, Jesus Christ's sons and daughters, are, have been brought into the family of God. We are now part of the family of Abraham. We are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise by faith. Churchgoers... And, and, they get, they get so caught up on trying to figure out whether Paul's sort of allegorical interpretation of Scripture is how they should be reading the Bible that they end up missing the point uh, altogether of this whole passage. If you, if you get caught up that we can talk about allegory and its purposes. I would like to say that this is not technically an allegory. It's more of an analogy. But that's just to say that we shouldn't read the Bible as if it's one long pilgrim's progress. It's a book with great truth and history and meaning. 
But as was referenced a couple of weeks ago with Brother Eric when he was preaching, and as I've tried to insinuate multiple times, whenever you're reading the Bible, especially when you're reading history, there's two levels of application going on. <laughs> Historical application, but also spiritual, we could call it redemptive application. And here Paul is teasing that out. He's drawing out this beautiful, redemptive application that within these two historical figures, we can see ourselves. He's using history as a window to help them understand their present conundrum, these Galatians that had found themselves in this predicament of being deceived by the doctrines of the Judaizers as opposed to listening to the grace and the gospel that Paul had given them. And he's doing so. He's not disregarding the real histories of Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael and all those sorts. Rather, he's using them as illustrations to explain the disaster that comes from the Judaizers themselves. As he says in verse 24, Sarah and Hagar... They represent two covenants. Hagar corresponds, as he says, to the covenant of works that was established at Mount Sinai. Of course, you know what occurs on that mountaintop. The giving of the law. Just as Hagar's children would always be slaves, since she was a slave, so too all the followers of the law, as he says, are children of slavery. As he's already shown, that's what the law does. It enslaves. Living according to that code as a way, as a means of finding freedom, of finding justification. As if, if I do X, Y, and Z, then what is that? That's bondage. Putting all of your eggs in the basket of works of what you can accomplish. That's slavery, Paul says. And it's nothing different than what Hagar had done with Sarah and Abraham. And that whole scheme... As Paul goes on to say, this is what the church does if, it's, if it loosens its grip on justification by faith. As he says, this corresponds, verse 25, to the present Jerusalem. This is going on right now, Paul says. This idea, this whole scheme that, yes, you are responsible for your freedom from sin. See, the Judaizers, you could say, were just like a bunch of Hagar's. And all of their disciples were like a bunch of Ishmael's. That's what they were doing with all of their preaching. Their preaching of justification by works only resulted in bearing more children for slavery. That's its only result. That's its only consequence. And the more their influence grew in those towns of southern Galatia and all of those congregations and all of those families, the more slaves they made. And essentially they were keeping the church Stuck at Sinai. They were stuck at the bottom of that mountain. Proverbially proverbially speaking. They were stuck there. Only with a sense of what they must do. In order to find freedom. To find fulfillment. To finally be set free from sin and death. And this is when Paul drops this hopeful word of correction. As he says verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. Whereas the twisted doctrines of the Judaizers corresponded to Hagar and Sinai in the present Jerusalem. The true church of God corresponds to Sarah 
The Jerusalem above, who we infer, represents the covenant of grace. Hagar, the covenant of works, what you do accomplishes your standing before God versus the covenant of grace that God has gifted you a standing, a right standing before God according to what? His son's work himself, according to Jesus himself. And just as Sarah's children were not enslaved but were free, so too the offspring, the disciples, you could say, of the heavenly Jerusalem are free. Instead of Ishmael's, what does the gospel produce? The gospel produces Isaac's children born through promise. Yes, the true sons of Abraham, if you will, aren't are those who belong to a specific bloodline or, or who have a particular pedigree or have names, uh, degrees, and all those sorts of things. Rather, they are those who are born again by faith as children of promise. Notice how he sums it up, verse 31. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You see Paul's train of thought and what he's trying to do, what he's driving home for these Galatians to take to heart, to believe. You know what it boils down to? It all boils down to this. Two questions. Are you on the receiving end of freedom or are you trying to make yourself free? You see, the Judaizers, what were they preaching? They were preaching a message that basically is just that. You got to make yourself free. You've got, you got to manufacture the freedom that you long for, the freedom that you hope for, the freedom that you crave. Release from all of the burdens, all of the weights, all of the cares, all of the sins. That's on you. You've got to do it. <laughs> it's the same thing as Sarah and Abraham trying to manufacture an heir through Hagar. They were trying to make the promise happened. And what is the result? Ishmael, who represents the promise of God being realized through efforts and works. The efforts and works of man. Something that Abraham did. <laughs> Trying to free yourself. By something you do. By something you can pull off. Never results in actual freedom. It only perpetuates slavery and your slavery to sin and death. What we need is someone who can free us. What we need is someone who can come and swoop down and liberate us. And this is exactly what is announced in the gospel, as Paul says, that for freedom Christ has set us free. Contrary to all of the slavish notions of Jewish legalism and its system of justification by your works, by what you can accomplish, in contrast to all of that, stands the good news of God, which produces Isaacs. And Isaac, of course, is representative of what? He represents the promise of God being realized through nothing but God's grace. Through faith alone. Remember all those, what we read back in Genesis. Who fulfills the promise through Sarah and gives a son to her and Abraham? It's God. God does it. And so you see, by looking at these two sons of Abraham, we are made to understand how the promise of God is fulfilled in us. We're made to understand how we are justified. Justification is that 
beautiful way of describing your right standing before God. How are you going to be made right? We are born into this world, sinners, enemies of God. How are we going to fix that breach? How are we going to repair that gulf of sin and condemnation and rebellion that separates us but separates us from God? How is that going to be bridged? How is that going to be repaired? Not by our working. We cannot make a bridge long enough or sturdy enough to get us across that great divide. There is nothing that we can do that can span the gap between our sin and finding salvation. There's nothing that we can accomplish. There's no amount of working, no amount of effort that we can do, no amount of leveling up. We, as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we are justified freely by His grace as a gift. We, as I said, we are the recipients of freedom. Our standing and our identity before God as the sons and daughters of God, the sons and daughters of Abraham, is something that we receive. It's a gift. It's not something that we can work and make happen. It's something that only God can make possible. And he already has through the death of his son on the cross. It's the cross that spans that gap. It's the cross that spans that great divide between sin and salvation. And it's only Jesus that can do it. It's only him who can accomplish it. And he has. It is finished. He has spanned that great chasm of condemnation. And he has brought, yes, you, the lost and the wandering across by his own hands. Nail-scarred ones at that. Adding even the smallest condition to salvation, to your right standing. The right standing that God offers to you through his son. It destroys the whole thing. If you want to try and pay for a gift, it doesn't become a gift anymore. A gift is free. It's inherently given for free. There's no strings attached. There's no uh, Christmas day. You don't say, all right, kids, pay up. No, it ruins the whole thing. It's not a gift anymore if you have to work for it. And if you have to to work for it, you're not free. You're a slave. And every sinner who repents and believes then in what Jesus has done for them is born again through promise, through something that only God can do. This is the way we understand the beauty of the Christian faith. This is who we are. Yes, for freedom. Christ has set us free. And indeed, we are free indeed. This understanding of the Christian faith has always received its fair share of criticism throughout the centuries. If you look at any history textbook on church history or whatnot, you'll notice that it's almost always some sort of schism, controversy over faith alone, justification by faith alone. Those who insisting upon it as the only way to be saved, it's often, very often, stirs up a bevy of different responses. More often than not, those in the church respond like the Judaizers did. By adding qualifications, provisions, addendums to the gospel. Sounds too free. No. 
All of that does is just ruin the gospel entirely. And you notice Paul addresses this too. Look at verse 29. Just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Okay, what has he just said? Remember, he's referencing back in Genesis. He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. You have Ishmael persecuting, mocking, making fun of Isaac. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Before he leaves this analogy of faith, he reminds them, he reminds the Galatians that how that after Isaac was born, he was persecuted by Ishmael. You can read about this in Genesis 21. He was harassing him, mocking him. To the point where finally, eventually, Hagar is expelled from the household. And the point is this, as as Paul says, those who cling to their works for their salvation are still found mocking, harassing those who cling to faith alone. You'll find it in the church even now. Therefore, just as Sarah eventually cast out Hagar and Ishmael, so too is the church summoned to banish any idea of justification by works. And to stand on that ground. You want to talk about hills to die on? That's a hill worth dying. That's a hill worth losing your life for. That we are justified freely. Not by what we can accomplish. But by what has already been accomplished on our behalf. And this isn't, this isn't easy. I know I'm going long. I'm sorry. It's not easy. The critics and the naysayers of, free, of the free grace of God are often very loud and they're very convincing. And indeed, much of the work of the Christian faith involves the struggle to believe what God says in his word. That it really is finished. That the cross really did work. And that your sins were really paid for in full by Jesus already. As as Jesus says to his disciples, John 6, 29, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Paul insists the very same thing. Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm on that. Stand firm, therefore, on that truth, on that gospel, on that belief. Stand firm, believing the same thing. That through no accomplishment of your own, you have been set free through Christ alone. As we said at the beginning, there is no freedom, there is no hope, and there is no life for you outside of Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf. Everything else, it's a lie. No matter what, It doesn't matter what it is. You could plug anything in. Freedom through pleasure. Freedom freedom through activism. Freedom through your occupation. Freedom through whatever. Plug in the blank. It's going to fail you. It's going to fail you. There's only one true avenue of true freedom. And it comes through the declaration of the gospel of God. Where his son, yes, took all of your sin and shame on his shoulders. And spanned that great divide. And brought you in to the family of God. According to what he has accomplished. 
So therefore, we have to ask this question as we close. The same question I asked earlier, are you on the receiving end of a freedom that has been won for you? Or are you tiring yourself, trying to make yourself free? Or we could ask it this way. Are you an Ishmael or are you an Isaac? Because essentially that's what Paul has brought up before these Galatians and he's bringing it up for us. Are you standing before God banking on what you can make happen in order to say, I am right with you? Or are you on the receiving end of an identity that has been won for you because of Jesus? One is slavery and one is freedom. My friends, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Let us pray.